Welcome back, everybody, as we continue here on Sports Talk. You know, uh, Frances, uh, who was living in Northeast El Paso, had to sell her home so she could move in with her daughter. Matter of fact, the thing was said and done in about a month, thanks to Brian Bird's. Eight showings and the home sold for over the list price. Now, are you worried if you put your home on the market that it'll take forever to sell? Don't worry. In fact, when you sit down with Brian Birds and his team from Century 21 Haggerty, you'll agree on a price and deadline. And if that deadline passes and the home isn't sold, he'll buy your home. That's Brian's guarantee. In fact, he takes the drama out of home selling. And if there is any drama, he will let you fire him free and clear. Only one call to make. And as to the official real estate agent of UTEP, the El Paso Chihuahuas, and El Paso Locomotive FC, not to mention the only agent I would call if I needed to sell my home, give Brian Birds a call today. The phone number, 751-1500. That's 751-1500 or online at brianbirds.com. That's brianbirds, B-U-R-D-S.com, and start packing. So excited to have... Uh, former big leaguer and El Paso in Butch Henry uh, join us uh, here on the phones as Sports Talk continues right now. 23 past the hour. Butch, welcome back to Sports Talk. How are you? Steve, Adrian, how are you? I'm doing good. Awesome. We're doing well as well. I mean, look, we've got playoff basketball, playoff hockey, Major League Baseball. Football's right around the corner. Uh, it was a very difficult three- to four-month period for a lot of sports fans. Now it's all back. Hopefully it stays. And obviously one of the big stories we're talking about baseball-wise is uh, what went down yesterday with young Padres uh, star shortstop Fernando Tatis Jr. and baseball's unwritten rules, Butch. Yeah, they're, they're, they're still there. Um, <laughs> it's... Uh... Through the course of years, though, from the time when I played to, to now, they, they've the unwritten rules of the game have turned, you know, kind of switched to uh, more of a self-serving, you know, for the for the person who was offended. I I, I see a lot of things that go on nowadays that, uh, you know, just didn't happen because of those rules back back when I played. But uh, that's you know that's the way the game has has developed and uh, you know uh, evolved. And it's it's now the unwritten rules are brought up when somebody feels offended, but otherwise, you know, nobody says anything about it. It's true. And yesterday, a lot of ball players took to social media to defend Tatis, pitchers, hitters, people that just felt that you know what, um, if you're in a position like uh, the Rangers were, down seven runs in the eighth inning. Don't fall behind three three and zero oh to a star hitter that's on fire, and then groove one right over the plate to give him a chance to hit it. Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, in a in a in a regular season, you know, where these guys are getting five hundred at bats, you know, that's one thing. But they're you know they've got to do you know maximum amount of damage in, in in at best half of those at bats. You know, I mean, they they might get you know in in sixty games. Uh, you know, 200 at bats, and uh, you know, I may be my math may be way off. I'm just, I'm just, you know, spitballing here. But uh, you know, these guys are they're 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 trying to do damage, and and you know, in, in today's game, the way things, you know, seven runs isn't, you know, it it, it isn't unreachable. I, I mean, later in the game, eighth inning, ninth inning. 
you know, eighth inning, you've still got two at bats, you know, for the home team. It's it's just, I, I mean, you, you don't want to, you don't want to get a, you know, give up a grand slam. Don't go three Oh on the guy, you know, get ahead or why aren't you, why aren't you throwing strikes early in the count down seven? You know, that would have been my question. In the nineties, when you pitched in the big leagues, were there things that if somebody did while you were on the mound, um, you would take exception to it? Well, yeah, and, and, and by all accounts, you know, late in the game, if you're down by a bunch, a huge 3-0 swing, you know, somebody coming out of their shoes 3-0, you know, that was a, that was a you know, a, an insult, an offense. Um, you know, but like I said, the game the game has has evolved from that. Um, you know, but the 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 bottom line with that is is I don't I don't think Tatis came out of his shoes. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. he hit the ball the opposite. He, he he went the other way with the ball. He you know, did. It wasn't it wasn't like he was he was you know cheating or or trying to ambush a three zero fastball right there. He hit the ball he hit the ball the other way. But I think so you said it best. Me as a, you, know? you know, it didn't strike me as a, a you know a, a, a come out of your shoes swing. You just said a moment ago, the game's evolved. I totally agree with that. And we're talking 25, 20, 25 years ago, the game has evolved right. in a big, big way. And the thing is, is that the bodies are different. The um, you know the I don't want to say the abilities change because you always had to be able to hit a baseball or throw a baseball. But you look at the guys today, and a lot of it, Butch, is also we've mentioned this earlier. Social media now everybody's got a voice. Players, fans, anyone, and that wasn't the case fifteen, twenty years ago when when the game was being played. No, no, not at all. You know, you could you 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 can. You can fare way worse, you know, if you, if you, you know, offend somebody. <laughs> you, you fare way worse on social media nowadays than you ever did. I mean, the worst that would happen back in my days is you, you might take a ball in the ribs or, mm-hmm. you know, as a pitcher you might get charged and, and, you know, get into a melee. But, you know, nowadays, you, you, you know, you're, you're branded for life if, if, if the Twitter sphere, you know, gets down on you. Butch Henry with us here on Sports Talk as we continue. Now, I know as a pitcher, you weren't known as a as a hard thrower like we see today. You didn't throw in the mid to upper 90s the way some guys do. And you mentioned, you know, the worst that would happen is you, you'd get charged. How many times did you get charged uh, during, your, uh, during your big league career? Never. I was, I was never charged. Um, I, I mean, I, I threw strikes. Everybody knew I threw strikes, and when somebody got hit, they they pretty much knew why. And and that was that was a part of the game back then. You know, I hit people on purpose when I was when I was, you know, needed to. And uh, but that was that was the part of the game where you know, it, it, it like like we say, it, the game has evolved. You know, mm-hmm. the, the pitchers don't own the the inner third of the plate anymore. Um, you know. Things, things, uh, you know, up, up six or seven late in the game. If a if a first baseman doesn't hold a runner on, the runner will take off and just take an uncontested base. You know that would that was a a, a no no back in the day. 
and you know you 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 respected each other you respected the game and i i think i think that has changed a little bit as well more with butch henry as we continue here on sports talk but first let's go to adrian and get this bottom of the hour sports center update all right adrian Thank you very much as we continue here, 32 now past the hour on Sports Talk. We've got Butch Henry with us on the phone lines, and we're talking about the uh, unwritten rules of baseball and uh, Tatis' incident yesterday and kind of how the game has changed and and what we've seen, uh, you know, what we've seen happen. Now, it wasn't that long ago you were coaching and managing in professional baseball. You manage at the independent league level. You coached in the... Um, rookie league level uh, for the Yankees organization was one. Was uh, your last uh, was your last major league affiliated job? Had you noticed the young players in general uh, that that things had changed on their side when they were first coming into the sport? Did they come in and have that same, like you said, respect the game the way uh, the way we see it today? No, and that's you know what, Steve. The the, the game has changed totally. It's it's computers and 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 analytics and and track man and and you know it, it the game has changed and the and the kids have changed with it you know um when when you've got when you've got players being drafted and coming in with three page uh lists of things that their private coaches are telling that they have to do and as as coaches we have to you know uh, accommodate them you know that 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 didn't fly back when. That's the main reason I'm not I'm not in baseball anymore is is because the game had changed, had turned into something that I wasn't. You know, uh, maybe I was out of it too long when I got back in. Maybe um, you know it just just didn't it didn't fit my my narrative for what I thought the game should be like, and and I didn't enjoy my time back with the Yankees. So you know I I ended that tenure. <laughs> um, but there, there's just, there's just a, a different mentality now with the, with the kids and, 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 you know, does social media have, have something to do with it? I, I don't want to blame. I just think, I think, you know, players from the forties or fifties probably would have scoffed at the way we went about our business. You know, um, I think it's just the way the game develops as, as, as the world turns and and you know um you know babe ruth and those guys uh roger maris they probably would have would have you know cringed their teeth at the way the way the game was played when when we played and it's you know it, it is what it is but uh i i yeah the game has definitely you know moved in a in a different direction from where it was you know 20 years ago and it's so interesting you say that because even if you're out for a couple of years of affiliated ball and you get back in, it, it could sometimes be a drastic change. And you have to be able to adapt and, and, and evolve with the game because if you try to keep things the way you played it and you remember it, it's going to eat you alive. Well, if you've ever seen me try to, try to do something on my cell phone, you, you know that I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not, not real. You know, I'm a bit of a technophobe you know, when it comes to stuff like that and, and when everything is done on computers and, and um, you know, everything's done, you know, on tablets and, and information's being, being thrown at you and, 
you know, you're not having to worry about your, your eyes anymore watching, you know, you just look at the numbers on a board and, and, you know, it, I, I was on Mars. I, you know, I, I mean, you know, when, when Jerry Dimbo called me and we were talking about, you know, whether I was going to come back or not, you know, and he, he, he made the comment, uh, you know, hey, you know, sometimes it doesn't seem like we're on the same page. And I, I laughed. I said, man, it doesn't seem like we're in the same book because I, you know, I, it just, it was just a difficult, difficult transition. And, and, you know, more power to the people that, that are able to morph, you know, that, that were, you know, in that situation that the players are, the players are different nowadays. Uh, the conditioning's different. Um, you know, like I said, everybody's got a private coach. Everybody's got, you know, a, 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 a club or a, a, you know, somebody that they defer to. So, so everything you do as a pitching coach is, is scrutinized, you know, by their private people. And, and there's no, you know, there's no collaboration. It's just, it's just, you know, you've got to do what, what the organization feels is best for the kid. And, and that's, that's do what his private coach tells him. So, you know, you're basically a spectator. At least, at least that's the way I felt. Do you feel like if ever given an opportunity, you'd ever want to get back into the game again? Probably not. I, 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 you know, um, and, and not to go into too much detail, but you know, the, the, the debacle with the community college that, that went on for, you know, stretched out for over two years. Um, you know, all that stuff just, just soured me. I, I still, you know, I still will dabble a little bit. Jonathan, Jonathan Law, who's at Tarleton State, uh, lives here in town. You know, I, I worked with him for a couple of months until he had to leave. Um, but that was on a, on a, just a very limited basis. And, uh, um, you know, it was, it was because his dad and my, and myself are, are good friends. And, but, but I just, I, I don't, I don't right at this point, Steve, I don't, I don't miss the game a whole lot. You know, I'm, I'm going to work every day at Fort Bliss, coming home and enjoying my, my wife and my daughter. And, you know, that's, that's good enough for me. No doubt. Do you enjoy watching baseball these days? Do you still like when it's on? Do you still like turning it on and, and watching the game? I can watch the game in about five minute stints. <laughs> you know, I'll watch I'll watch about five or ten minutes and then I change the channel. Yeah. Well. I can't I can't stand watching guys that don't run to first base. I can't you know I can't stand watching outfielders that, that can't reach the cutoffs. Um you know, that 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 you know, from from shallow left field, throw a fifteen hopper that's twenty feet up the line, up the first base line, because they're you know, but they can hit three hundred. You know, but but defensively, they're a liability. As a pitcher, that would that would drive me nuts. You know, you you, you put guys that that can hit three hundred out there, but can't you know can't help you defensively, and that's you know, it's it just. <laughs> it just would would drive me nuts, but you know, back to back to Tatis. Uh, you know, he he was a he's a young kid. He, he's exciting. Um, you know, if he did anything wrong, he he didn't check the he didn't check the the third base coach three zero to see if he was getting a take or the you know the swing sign. And, and that's you know that's all he did wrong. I mean, I agree. He stayed inside a ball and hit it out of the park. You, you don't you don't want to give up a grand slam. 
you know what? Make better pitches. But on the flip side, but you know what? On the flip side, I was I was critical of Jace Tingler, the first year manager for the Padres. That if you've got a problem with it, don't don't go ahead and air it out in the public and something like that. You have your have your players back. He's young, impressionable. You're in your first year. Handle that behind closed doors and don't let it get out in the media that all of a sudden you're criticizing uh, one of your young uh, phenoms for doing something like that and no making doubt. him apologize that, after know, the game. That's just growing pains from a from a young manager who is trying to trying to diffuse a situation that he thinks is 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 uh you know bigger than it is you know every as a, as a first year manager every ripple looks like a tidal wave and i i can tell you from experience you know every every single little thing that happens you you feel like as a as a first year manager you've got to you've got to handle that and you've got to handle it you know with authority and out you know out where everybody can see so that they know you're in charge. And, you know, that's just a young manager over overreacting to a situation that, you know, another manager called him out for a kid that swung 3-0 and hit the ball out of the park. Big deal. All right. Listen, it's always great to catch up with you. I'm happy to have you back on the show and, and talk a little baseball with you. And uh, look forward to the next time we get a chance to do this again, Butch. I'm always around, man. <laughs> we'll talk soon. Take care, and thanks again for the time. You guys take care. Butch Henry, as we keep things moving, 19 in front of six uh, as Sports Talk continues. Don't forget, Much Dream, the story of uh, Mickey Mantle and how he became the Mick uh, with his father. Author Howard Berman is going to join us in about uh, 20 minutes from now, right after the Dallas Cowboys update. But first, let's get back to Adrian Ochoa. ABC 7 News is next on 600 ESPN El Paso. ESPN El Paso. Excited about a book that came out a little more than a month ago. And if you're a Mickey Mantle fan, you're going to love this. Howard Berman has the book out called Much Dream, Making the Mick. And he joins us live on our phone lines right now as we begin our final hour of the show. Howard, great to have you on in El Paso. And thank you so much for the time today. Oh, my pleasure. Now, Congratulations on the book. I know baseball books have been kind of a, a, a nice side project for you because you have really made your name uh, in terms of uh, Broadway productions and, and working on uh, a lot of uh, theatrical work, yet um, I know baseball books have been something that uh, you've been very proud of and uh, writing about Mickey Mantle and especially the upbringing is something we just haven't had a chance to really read about in a lot of other books that have portrayed him over the years. Yeah, that's why, of course, I went to it. There are an awful lot of books about Mickey as a professional baseball player. And there's probably a lot of things known about him afterwards, his drinking and womanizing and all the problems he had and his untimely death and all that stuff. But there had to be something in his upbringing that made all of those things work. And so I was really interested in that. I was interested in the whole idea of... of, uh, Fathers playing catch with their sons and fathers working with their sons to, to make them into something special. Um, I, 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 many of us did that, I know. Uh, my father threw until his arm almost came off. <laughs> and my career came up just a little bit short of Mickey's. Actually, it came up a little bit short of even making their high school baseball team. But that's another story. 
But in Mickey's case, it, it's an amazing story of a father and a son and a dream. Mutt's dream was to make Mickey into a great baseball player. Unfortunately, he died and never really saw it happen. So, in a sense, it, it's... Would, would you... As you tell the story, does the book kind of become a tragedy just because Mickey never had a chance to let his father enjoy what for him was such a, a, a you know incredible Hall of Fame career with the Yankees? Yeah, that's really a good question. You mentioned early, uh, earlier on that my background is in playwriting, and it is. And I see Mickey as a classic tragic hero in the sense that Sophocles and Creon and Shakespearean hero, uh, tragic figures or classic heroes in the sense that they rose to some position of great height and then fell from that position due to their own malfeasance, their own problems, their own issues, but then ultimately came to realize that and to understand that. And that was what was so fascinating about Mickey to me. Late in his life, he got it. He said, yeah, kids, don't be like me. Don't be like Mickey. I'm not a good role model. And he ultimately, I think, came to understand that there's a difference between being a hero and being a role model. And he acknowledged that he wasn't a great role model. He was a hero to a lot of people, of course. Uh, and that was the, 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 the story that intrigued me. Yeah, he is a tragic hero. Now, you grew up um, in New York in the 50s, uh, like yeah. a lot of people did, and I know you have a book out that's actually called Willie, Mickey, and the Duke, where you told the story of uh, New York City around the mid-50s. Growing up as a kid, um, especially uh, you know in Brooklyn, were you a Yankees fan, or did you uh, were you a Dodgers fan, like so many people? Yeah, interesting story. I was a die-in-the-wall Dodger fan. I would have bet anybody that Duke Snyder was the best center fielder in, in baseball. Again, remember, we're talking the 50s here when New York had three great center fielders, Willie, Mickey, and the Duke, as you mentioned, all playing at the same time, all playing within two miles of each other, all almost exactly the same age. Duke was a couple years earlier, but they're essentially the same age. And, you know, I, I had friends who were uh, all Dodger fans. We didn't talk to the Giant fans much. Uh, we didn't like the Giant fans. We thought that the Dodgers, the Brooklyn, was uh, the place uh, uh, to to celebrate the working class, if you will, of New York, and we were proud of that. And the interesting story: one morning, I never told anybody. No, Mickey clearly, uh, clearly is the best center fielder. But one morning, I came down to breakfast. My father was already eating, reading the newspaper, and he said to me, "He said, How are you not going to believe this? This is amazing.' I said, "What? What happened?" He said. The Dodgers just traded even up Mickey Mantle for Duke Snyder. I'm nine years old. I thought, my goodness, an even up trade. And you know what? Deep down, I thought, what a great trade for the Dodgers. Mickey Mantle really was better than Duke Snyder. Man, it's incredible because I always wonder with, with Mantle, uh, and, and obviously you go more into the upbringing and what it was like uh, growing up in Oklahoma, but you always think to yourself, yeah. if he doesn't step into that drainage hole as a rookie in the World Series against the, um, against the Giants in 51, what could have been with that speed? And, and not only that, he played in pain his entire career. And imagine if Mantle didn't tear up his knee and, and could have remained healthy throughout his career. 
Yeah, no question about it. People don't realize how fast he was. I'm not sure if it's still the case, but I know at one point, some years back, I read he had the fastest time ever recorded from home plate to first base. Now, that may not be the case these days. I'm not 100% sure, but it certainly was at the time. And he was a, he was a football uh, halfback. He was recruited by uh, Bud Wilkinson, University of Oklahoma. He had all that speed. But, you know, and he did play through pain. He played through a lot of pain. A number of his teammates said, you wouldn't believe what Mickey went through before games, taping up the leg and, and dealing with all of the, the issues that he had to deal with physically. He could have been, well, he was already one of the greatest players ever, but he would have been even better than that. But, you know, the story goes back farther than that. More than before 1951, because Mickey's father said, You're never going to play football. You've got to play baseball. But the football coach at his high school, Commerce High School, comes to Mutt Mantle, Mickey's father, and says, You've got to let Mickey play football. You owe it to the city. You owe it to this area. It's a, it's a football area. It's not a baseball area. Everybody's going to be furious with you. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna have the wrath of the town down upon you. You gotta let your kid play football. So he relents and lets Mickey play football. In one of the very first practices, he hadn't even played a game yet. He's kicked in the shin by one of his best buddies, by the name of Bill Mosley, the quarterback. Accidentally kicked in the shin. They take him home. They take him to a friend's house actually, and because he didn't want his father to know. And the, 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 the leg just keeps swelling up. And it just keeps swelling up, and they know there's something wrong. So a few days later, they end up having to take him to uh, the crippled children's hospital in Oklahoma City. They sure didn't want to do that because they didn't have any money, and that was a charity hospital. And that's embarrassing to have your kid in a, in a charity hospital. But anyway, they put him in the hospital, and the doctors try to treat it for a few days, and then they say, you know, we've got a new medicine. It, it, it really was new at the time. It was called penicillin. And there aren't many dosages of it around. Most of it's going to the military, but we do have some in the hospital. They ended up shooting Mickey over and over and over again with penicillin. When it didn't heal itself, they called in the parents and they said, we hate to tell you this, we've got to take the leg off. And mutt just dissolved. I mean, that's not possible. You can't take the leg off. I mean, this, this kid's been training all, trained all his life to be a baseball player. What do you mean take the leg off? Miss, uh, Mickey's mother, who was a real firecracker, she stood up and said, you ain't taking the leg off today. You ain't taking it off tomorrow. You're never taking the damn leg off. And she won the kid today. And they obviously didn't take the leg off, and he went on to play. But that was the leg that he hurt the knee on wow. because it was weak to begin with. And... Uh, he had problems with that leg all of his life. Stepping on the, uh, the the sprinkler head didn't make it any, well, made it worse, but he was injured to begin with. So it kind of makes you say that even if that doesn't happen in the 51 series, he could have yeah. stepped wrong. He could have, there were things that just could have happened playing the outfield in general that would have damaged that knee over the course of time. Yeah, the leg was weak, no question about it. That's real interesting. Now, we're talking to author Howard Berman. His new book, Much Dream, Making the Mick. It's available uh, at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. Um, How difficult was the research for you, knowing that you are going into an area that has really seldom been told over these years and, and, and led you to write this book? And 
and and so many people that were part of his early life are not around. How were you able to to really get the story together to put this out? Yeah, I really had to dig into a lot of old sources. Uh, some of his friends, uh, when he grew up, uh, wrote about him later. Uh, and, and when he got to high school, he was a high school star. Remember that? He was a three-sport star. He was a pitcher on the, on the high school baseball team. Also played shortstop in those days, in all days, I suppose. Best athletes often pitch and play uh, shortstop, and he did that. He was a, ha- a halfback on the football team. And he was a shooting guard on the, uh, on the uh, basketball team. So there was a lot of stories written about him. And they interviewed his family and they interviewed his, 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 uh, his friends. And I was able to cobble a lot of that, those things together. And uh, uh, out came uh, the, the, the book with, uh, with all of that as background. At the same time, is this book more about Mickey, or would you say it's more about his father, Mutt, which, you know, has been, he's been chronicled over the years, but no one's really told the story about Mickey's dad, especially the fact that he loved baseball and and probably had as many dreams of playing in the big leagues as his son did. Yeah, it's a story about both of them, really. Uh, I I, I like to think it's it's 50-50, Mickey and Mutt. Mutt was a miner, uh, a zinc and lead miner. Uh, they grew up, uh, and, and, and Mickey grew up uh, in, in poverty. They didn't even have running water or electricity through all of his early years. But Mutt was determined, before Mickey was even born, that Mickey was going to be a baseball player. His, his wife, Lovell, tells the story that, that Mutt would throw baseballs into uh, Mickey's crib when he was barely a few days old, and did it constantly. And she would go walk around and pull them out of the crib, and, and Mud would come back later and find new ones and put them in the crib. He wanted Mickey to be comfortable around the baseball. And then he pitched to Mickey pretty much every day of his life when Mickey turned four and, 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 and on. Uh, he had a uh, much uh, father uh, was a, uh, also a player. And pitched left-handed, Mutt pitched right-handed, so Mickey became a switch hitter, having to hit against both the left-handed and the right-handed uh, uh, pitching, and that's how he developed into a in, into a switch hitter. And I think, you know, when I started the, the, when I started doing the research for the book, I thought, well, what I'm going to find is the story of a father who uh, is abusive, that forces his son, that pressures his son. And we all know those stories. Uh, I don't know if you remember Todd Marinovich and, and his father Marv and uh, Lorenzo Ball and, and his father and all the other uh, stories about fathers who, who pressure their sons. Not so, not so with Mickey. They were oh, they were really best friends. They did everything together when Mickey got old enough to do those things. And uh, it was, in effect, uh, 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 a story of great respect. And I think, ultimately, that's what created Mickey's problems because... Mutt's dream, Mutt said, all I know how to do is mine and play baseball. I'm going to teach my son to play baseball, not be a minor. And Mutt wanted him to be great, and Mickey knew that, and he wanted to please his dad more than anything else in the world that was pleasing his dad. Well, his dad dies right after Mickey gets up to the major leagues. He's not around to see it. And I believe that it was that pressure that Mickey put on himself to try to live up to Mutt, uh, to, to live up to Mutt's dream, to always say, can I be as good as I can be? Is Mutt going to be proud of me? Is he going to like the way I'm doing playing the game? And I think that's what drove him and made him uh, uh, last 
third of his life, very difficult. He became an alcoholic, as we know, womanizer, difficult around people, was rude, abusive, and all sorts of things. And I think that was the pressure that he felt. Also, of course, he's in New York City, which is by itself a pressure to begin with, particularly when you're replacing Ruth Gehrig and DiMaggio. Uh, so, yeah, the relationship between the two of them was wonderful. And I think Mutt was devastated in some ways when Mickey went off to play baseball. Not that he didn't want him to. He wanted Mickey to play baseball, but he was also losing his best friend at the same time. Howard, I've got so many more questions for you, but I'm up against the break. Uh, stick around. We'll come yeah. back, and we'll talk more about much Dream making the Mick. You bet. In the meantime, let's go to Charlie One. He's standing by, has a traffic update for us at 17 past the hour. Charlie. Howard Berman joins us on Sports Talk. He's the author of the new book, Much Dream, Making the Mick, which you can pick up uh, on uh, hardcover at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and learn about uh, all the early days between uh, the relationship uh, with Mickey and his father, uh, Mutt Mantle. And I noticed in this book, you have a lot of dialogue, Howard, between uh, both father and son. And I'm trying to figure out, especially as you've told the story of of them talking, you know, from his early years up through when he's um, into high school and then eventually makes it into, uh, you know, the, the Yanks, how you're able to accumulate so much of the dialogue between between Mickey and his dad. Yeah, that's a really good question, and I'll be happy to answer it. So a lot of the dialogue comes from research into uh, things that were said by his friends, they wrote letters later because Mick was so famous. People that knew him <clears throat> uh, talked to reporters all the time. Mickey ghosted uh, several books that were theoretically autobiographical, so he has a lot of quotes in those, and other people have, uh, have, have written stories about Mickey. A lot of people have written stories about Mickey, but almost all about his professional baseball career. And this book, of course, is not about that. It's about the early years. But there's something else behind all of it, and that is I'm a playwright. That's my training. That's what I've done. I've written more than 30 produced plays. So dialogue is my strength, if you will. Now, let me be really clear about it. Makes this. a lot of sense. Every, every single episode in the book is true. I didn't invent any stories. But I did create some dialogue, but never to go outside of what we know or think we know to be absolutely true. Let me give you an example. Mickey is at one point, Mickey couldn't swim, by the way. Maybe he wasn't a good enough athlete, I don't know. But he couldn't swim. <clears throat> he goes to the to the, rib, to the No Shoe River one day. We know the story because his buddy tells us the story. And uh, they're swimming in the nude. And all of a sudden, a girl walks by. And Mickey jumps in the water to get away from the girl. And he has to be rescued by his friend, uh, Bill Mosley. We know that's the fact. We know that happened. Bill Mosley says that. What I do, then, is create some dialogue that makes that happen. So I have Mosley say, hang on, Mickey, I'll be there in a minute, I'll get you. That's the kind of dialogue I created. Never changing the story, but sometimes creating a dialogue that gets from point A to point C. We know that's a fact. So I filled in the middle with some dialogue. That's what I do as a playwright. And I think that's what makes the book unique. 
Absolutely. You help tell the story a little bit. If not, it'd be a little more difficult, I'm sure. Plus, you can kind of connect the dots and, and do something that gives it more of a personal approach. And you mentioned something as a playwright. Could you ever see much dream being turned into a play? Yes and no. I, it could be because it's structured as a play, it's written as a play. You'd have difficulty with the early, early years. Uh, you certainly could do a story from his uh, uh, mid-teens on, I suppose, and make that work as a play. I'd like to think you could. I've had a couple of queries from uh, people who thought that perhaps it, 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 they might be interested in purchasing the film rights to it. So that's also a possibility. But, you know, dialogue makes a story real. So instead of saying something like, well, Mickey jumped in the river and couldn't swim and he was saved, I'd much rather have him say, hey, Mickey, hang on, I'll get you in a minute. Mickey says, yeah. You know, and, and that's that makes it come alive. That makes it personal. And I think that's a, a, a good way to tell the story. In terms of his relationship with his mother, and, and she yeah. is obviously a big part of this book as well because it wasn't it wasn't just a, a single uh, you know household with just his dad he had uh, his mom and his mom was around uh, while the father uh, passed away while Mutt passed away I know Lovell was around to the point where she got to watch his entire career including Mickey Mantle Day at the end of his career in, in New York what was his yeah. relationship like with his mom compared to his dad yeah that's, a, that's interesting she was a huge baseball fan and so she, she supported her husband training her son to become the baseball player that he was. They tell the story, Mickey's told the story a number of times, that uh, when he was gone for, during the day and, and Mutt was in the mine during the day and there were afternoon games on, most of the games in those days were afternoon, and they were following St. Louis, which is the closest uh, team to the, that area of Oklahoma. And when they couldn't see the game or they couldn't listen to the game, in the evening, when they were sitting around the dinner table, Lovell would recount the game almost as if she were an, an announcer. She would explain what happened, who did what, who got the hits, what the pitchers did, did the whole thing. So she was also supportive of, of Mickey all throughout uh, the, the, his uh, upbringing as a baseball player. But she was a, a different character. I mean, she was much more outgoing than Mutt was. Mutt was kind of a stoical and and uh, quiet, very, very strong man, but he was quietly strong. Uh, she was outgoing and, and, and uh, uh, much more assertive. And uh, Mickey tells the story about, uh, and Mutt tells the story, actually, of uh, being embarrassed uh, by Lovell uh, at some basketball games when the referee made a call that she didn't think was right. She would start screaming and carrying on about four eyes, this, that, and the other thing. And Mutt would say, yeah, he'd have to move away. Uh, from the area, he didn't want to sit anywhere near her when she was doing that. But Mickey's relationship with her was good. What I don't know about, and I couldn't, and, and, and I wish I did, uh, but I don't know about so much about the, his two, his three brothers. He had, they had twins, Ray and Roy and Butch, and, and, and a sister Barbara. But Mutt, and they all played some ball, uh, and they played together a lot. Uh, but ne but Mutt never ever worked with. Uh, Ray and Roy and Butch, the way he did with Mickey, and I don't know why. Well, it's it's. I guess the the sad part is uh, none of them are around anymore. Correct. So you're not able to really find that out firsthand from from any of the other uh, siblings. Yeah, I tried. I, I couldn't. Uh, at the point that I started the book, it wasn't possible to do that.
Yeah. Now, uh, it's also interesting. Mickey Mantle was named, uh, his dad named him after uh, his favorite player, which was uh, Mickey Cochran, which also is interesting yeah. because he's a Hall of Fame catcher. Yeah. Uh, Mud wanted Mickey to be a catcher. There was no doubt about it. He said, my son's going to be a great baseball player. He's going to be a great catcher for two reasons. One, Mud really admired uh, Mickey Cochran, who was then, when, Mick, when uh, Mickey Mantle was born, uh, Cochran was with uh, Philadelphia, I believe. And he liked the fact that, that uh, Cochran was uh, aggressive and a tough guy and played through injuries and played the game the right way and uh, was a dominant character. So he liked that aspect of him. He was a hero to Mutt. Uh, and also, he felt that the catcher was the center of the game. He felt that the, catch, the catcher was in control of what went on in the game. He was the most important man in the field. From his squatting position behind the plate, he, he scans the entire field. He tells the pitcher what kind of pitch he wants. He calls to the infielders to tell them we should take a high pop-up. Uh, he signals to everyone how many outs there are. He had to be a tough guy because he got foul tips back at him. He balls kicked up from the dirt and, 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 and would hit him. He had to be the most skillful player on the field. That's what Mutt thought. Interestingly enough, later in his life, Mickey finds out that Mickey Mantle finds out that Mickey Cochran's real name is Gordon. And he says, my goodness, I'm glad they didn't call me Gordon. I hate that name. <laughs> and, you know, I think uh, yeah, Gordon Mantle wouldn't have the same mellifluous ring that Mickey Mantle has. He still would have been the same player, of course. But there's something about the name Mickey Mantle that Gordon Mantle certainly wouldn't have had. We'll come back and wrap up our conversation with author Howard Berman in a moment. But first, let's go to Adrian and get this bottom of the hour Sports Center update as we continue. All right, Adrian, thank you very much. We've got author Howard Berman on the phones with us right now. Much dream making the Mick his latest effort. And we're talking about uh, the great Mickey Mantle uh, here in our final hour on Sports Talk. Why do you think it is that of all the uh, you know baseball players over the years, I mean, you could say that there's been more books written about Mantle than anybody else, including Babe Ruth. Yeah, Uh People who sell memorabilia claim, I've read this, that no other player uh, sells more memorabilia than Mickey Mantle, other than possibly Babe Ruth, and of course there's far uh, less of that uh, available. I think there's a couple of things, and I don't mean this to be facetious when I say this, but part of the reason he was so popular was he was incredibly good-looking. This is a, He looked like a Greek god. I mean, let's face it, people like good-looking people. That's why they are movie stars, uh, celebrities, and that's part of it. He had a personality uh, that was appealing to a lot of people. It was kind of an ah shucks uh, personality, the, the country kid from Oklahoma, uh, a lot of which was put on because uh, he felt that was uh, something that served uh, served his interest. Uh, he had a he had a smile that would light up a room. He uh, hit home runs. Let's face it, home run hitters get the girls. And he hit a lot of home runs. He was also, I think people saw him as a flawed individual, particularly later in his life. Um, all the stories started to come to light late in his career about his womanizing, his carousing. And, and he, he, was, he could be very abusive to people at times. And so I think what people saw was uh, this idea of a uh, of greatness combined with vulnerability. And I know as a playwright, that vulnerable heroes are always appealing characters. 
As you wrote the book and completed it with all of your research, what's the one thing you would say you learned the most um, about him and his relationship with his dad that you really did not know beforehand? A couple of things. The first thing was I mentioned sort of earlier that uh, I thought there was going to be an an abusive relationship to a certain degree, that Mutt was going to force Mickey uh, to become the player that he wanted him to be. And I say in the book, uh, Mickey chose to become the Mick. Uh, he, he didn't have to do that. He could have rebelled. Lots of kids do. But he didn't. So that, that, that's, that's one of the things uh, that I learned. The other thing which I thought was really interesting was to see all the things that he did as a kid uh, that, we, that you don't think of, of, of Mickey Mantle, a great baseball player, doing these things. And he went fishing with his buddies. He played board games with them on rainy days in, 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 in his mother, on his mother's kitchen table. He rode his horse to school sometimes. Uh, he horsed around with the kids. Uh, they played on this alkali field that was stone hard and uh, with uh, dust from the lead and zinc mines. And his mother was always afraid that he might fall into one of the abandoned mine shafts, of which there were many. And she was panic-stricken that, that he would do that. And Mickey later sort of joked and said the reason he became an infielder uh, was because he didn't want to have to chase the ball and roll forever on the on on the hard on the hard pack. But what I saw was a a, a guy, a, a, a young kid who did a lot of things that young kids do. Uh, you know, later we see him as a god, if you will, as this this great man, this this great player. But early on, it's kind of fun to see him as a, a guy in high school. He actually he, he was actually in two plays, uh, theatrical productions in his high school, which I think a lot of people don't know. And he was very shy. So he didn't want to have a big part, and, and uh, mostly he had, he played off-stage characters or, or people in the crowd. But he was on stage a couple of times. I also found out that he was pretty bright. Uh, he didn't take school all that seriously, uh, but he got decent grades, got solid grades. His teacher says he was a good kid in school, although he would sometimes spend his time looking out the window, as many of us did, and dreaming of other things. He was also in, if you're ready for this, the pre-engineering club in his high school. He must have had some brains that we never, we don't think of him that way. We think of him sort of as a, a simple-minded guy. And even later on in his life, he said, sometimes I think if I had the same body and the same natural ability and somebody else's brain, who knows how good a player I could have been. I think that's not really true, and I don't think he really thought it was true either. But that was sort of the image of Mickey. He was pretty bright. Yeah, it really sounds like it. Now, um, I also look at you know his few, you know, his kids after um, you know he was married and yeah. he has uh, or had four sons and right. um, he went through some some heartache with with his kids, didn't he? Yeah, he sure did. Three of his sons became alcoholics, as he did. Yeah, his wife also became an alcoholic, and Mickey has a quote. Uh, that comes from sometime later in his life. He said, I never knew my kids until I met them on a bar stool. Uh, he acknowledged late in his life that he wasn't a very good father. He didn't look after them carefully. He also thought he was going to die young. Most of the mantle men died young from lung disease working in the mines or the dusty fields of Oklahoma. And he, ne- he never believed he would live uh, out of his 40s. And he has that quote, of course, that everybody knows. He says, if... I had known I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. It's not an original quote, by the way, but but it's often ascribed to, to Mickey. Uh, yeah. 
Well, I'll tell you what, folks. It's a good read. You're going to want to check it out from Howard Berman. It's his latest, Much Dream, Making the Mick, available uh, on on, uh, hardcover formats right now, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, where you can pick it up. Enjoy the conversation, Howard. Congratulations on the book. Thanks for giving us so much time and and, uh, telling the story of, of the Mick and his dad, Mutt. Thanks, Steve. I really enjoyed it. You asked good questions. It leads to good answers. Thanks a lot. You betcha. We'll come back, wrap it up next. Stay with us. Sports Talk continues right here. 600 ESPN El Paso.